turn to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 through 30. Thus says Yahweh, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the, way is, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth. Behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their own devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend, shall perish. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us, pain as of a woman in labor. Go not out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. I've made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called, for Yahweh has rejected them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. For whenever we, your children, give no heed to your guidance, your commands, the righteous way that you've called us to. 
And then on top of that, for whenever we disregard your warnings. And so for those who are truly your saints, call us anew and afresh to repentance. Soften our heart. May we not forget but remember the riches of your mercy and grace towards us in Christ. May our hearts rise in gratitude and thankfulness and a life of dependent obedience for your glory. Father, I cry out for those to whom this passage is most applicable. That they are not silver at all. They've grown up in church. They've heard your word. They perhaps have gotten wet in some baptistry. They eat bread and wine, but they know nothing of communion with you. Pray that they see they need repent not only of their disobedience, but for all their blasphemous obedience in their own strength for their own glory. I pray you would remove a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh and make them a new creation in Christ. We are inadequate for all these things, and so we look to your word to bless, to your spirit to bless the preaching of your word to magnify Christ, Father, in whose name we ask this. Amen. We've come to the close of the first major section of this book. In chapter 1, we studied the calling of Jeremiah and saw the first two visions he received, which were uh, summaries, as it were, of Jeremiah's message that we see repeated throughout this book. And then in chapter 2 through 4-4, we saw Israel's whoredom, her unfaithfulness, her covenant unfaithfulness to her Lord, and yet Yahweh pleading for her to return, not, not in any kind of show, but to return truly to Him, to repent. Then in chapter 5, chapter 4 and verse 5, through this chapter, Judah having given no heed to these pleas and warnings, well, our doom is pronounced, judgment is certain. And so once again this morning, verses 16 through 30, sin and judgment form the theme. And is it not striking how though we have the same theme set before us once again, how Jeremiah isn't monotonous, this isn't redundant. I think there are a few reasons for this. One being, more than these are Jeremiah's words, these are God's words. He has made sunsets for millennia. And they don't grow redundant or monotonous. And if as such as His glory and beauty and wisdom in the realm of general revelation, how much more true is this of His special revelation, His Word? 
Second, we continually have fresh metaphors that are bringing this before us, particularly in this instance, that of a crossroads and metallurgy. But then third, these themes, sin and judgment, are perpetually relevant to the human condition. To grow tired of them would mean that something is seriously wrong. And something is so often seriously wrong. If these warnings and these judgments droll on, the irony is perhaps there is no passage more applicable, more urgent for you to hear. Now perhaps it's simply the constant beat of the wardrum has you longing to hear of the peace of Christ. And if that's the case, well enough, but don't begrudge God's design to teach deeply, profoundly, thoroughly the sin that makes us long for that peace, the judgment due that sin which makes us long for that peace and reconciliation with Christ. But if you are bored, just simply bored, with the repeated emphasis on judgment, wishing that you could hear a more pleasant word so that you can sin and feel comfortable about it, then I pray, God, soften your damned, rebellious, hard heart and show you the doom that awaits you eternally. To hear, I pray He soften your heart to hear this message you most need to hear. You are a sinner and there will be a judgment. In the first part of this passage, verses 16 through 19, we have two commands. These are two commands that were given sometime in the past because we're told of Judah's response to those commands and then the consequences that are coming upon them. In the first command, God asks His people, tells His people, to stand at the crossroads, to look and ask for the ancient paths where the way is good, and then to walk in those paths, to find rest there. Stand, look, ask Walk, fine, they've come to this place of decision and they are to seek wisdom and walk in the good way. In the ancient world, it was the ancient path that proved best. It was the known way, therefore the traveled way. The paths were beaten down so there would be less vegetation to deal with. And because these are the preferred ways, they are the safe ways. Phil Riken explains, in a paved society, it's hard to understand what Jeremiah means. For automobiles, newly paved roads are best, not old roads full of potholes. But in Jeremiah's day, people liked to travel on ancient pathways 
Pedestrians wanted to follow a well-established route according to the old Latin maxim, via trita, via tuta, the worn way is the safe way. In the wilderness, it is best to walk on a well-beaten path that has been trampled by many feet. If you've ever been hiking in any wilderness, that's when you begin to see the value of the trodden path rather than striking out on your own preferred shortcut. What are these ancient paths? God's ways. His commands. His law. His truth. The next chapter makes this abundantly clear in chapter 7 and verse 23. But this command I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. This makes it clear when God had said this to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, God tells His people, You shall walk in all the way that Yahweh your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. He had commanded them, instructed them in the good way. This is the way that the man who fears Yahweh walks in. In Proverbs, we find the father pleading, Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. These crossroads are perpetually set before us. Hearing the word of God this morning, you are afresh put before these crossroads. Moses challenged Israel and it stands before you just as real today. Moses said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That you and your offspring may live loving Yahweh your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the land Yahweh your God, that, that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to give them. Let this be clear though. This is not a path that you walk for life. This is a path that you walk as life. This is not a path that you walk for salvation. This is a path that you walk as your salvation. 
the law outside of Christ will crush us with condemnation and lead us to the Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. But once in Christ, the law leads us in paths of righteousness, showing us how to cling to our God in love and faithfulness. It instructs the redeemed how to live unto their Redeemer. And as you walk in God's ways, because of Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, unto Jesus, you will find His words to be true. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me and you will find rest for your souls because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. But Judah rebels saying, we will not walk in it. This is not the despairing cry of a sinner. We cannot walk in it. This is an obstinate rebellion. We will not walk in it. And do you not see in this, they are rejecting not simply His law, they are scorning His love, His grace. This is a brazen and mutinous saying, we will not walk in it. And so the second command follows not simply sequentially, but con- uh, consequentially, logically. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. Because of what God has said, because of, of their response to what He said, He sends watchmen who warn them. These watchmen are the prophets. The function is explained most clearly to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33, 7-9. So you, son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will, will, I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So this sounding trumpet is God's warning them of judgment coming because of what they said concerning His commands. In 4, 5 through 6, Judah was told, Blow the trumpet through the land, for I bring disaster from the north. At the beginning of this chapter, they were to blow the trumpet into Koa, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. They did not give any heed to these warnings. They didn't blow the trumpet, but God is blowing His through His prophet in telling them to do so. 
See, in the previous command, the covenant stipulations were involved. That is, the commands of God. And having disobeyed those, now what's being spoken of in this trumpet being sounded are the covenant sanctions. Those curses that were promised to come upon them should they disobey His word. The prophets act as God's prosecuting attorneys showing Judah where she's violated the terms of the covenant and warning them of the consequences they will face should they persist, calling for them to repent and turn back from Yahweh. Well, Judah refuses both Yahweh's commands of life and His warnings of death, saying, we will not pay attention. And so, God therefore, verse 18, calls on the nations to assemble. And we've seen this kind of language already in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 12. The heavens were called to bear witness to this trial of Israel's whoredom and covenant unfaithfulness. We just saw another instance whenever Moses called heaven and earth to witness against them this day that life and death were set before them. And and so this kind of legal covenant act is before us again. But this time, the nations are not assembled as witnesses to Israel's trial, but to her sentencing and execution. Yahweh will bring disaster upon this people. The fruit of their own devices. Beware of what you sow, because God will make you eat it. 2.19, he told them, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake Yahweh your God. If you reject the sweet, there's nothing but the bitter. If you hate the light, there's nothing for you to embrace but darkness. If you rebel against good, there's nothing left but evil. If you turn away from life, you have turned towards death. Proverbs 1, 29-31 explains, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Yahweh, would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Do you see the same two divisions of, uh, of the Word of God there? They do not fear Him. They don't walk in the way. They don't obey His commands. And they would have none of His reproof, His warnings. Because that's so, therefore, They shall eat the fruit of their way and have their feel of their own devices. See, the law of the harvest cannot be evaded. You remember Galatians chapter 6? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So can you see in this, they're they're going to eat the fruit of their own devices. Can you see the justness of God's justice and therefore its absolute terror and dread? Vern Poitras captures it well. The punishments of God are never arbitrary, 
but fit his own holy character. Sin always involves an attempt to play God, to usurp God's authority, and to be one's own standard of right and wrong, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. If in sin we engage in an attempt to virtually destroy God's authority and claim on us, to destroy God if we could... The fit punishment for such rebellion is a replica of the crime. As you have done, it will be done to you, Obadiah 15. Since we have attempted to destroy God, we are ourselves destroyed by God in hell. Good things are often a toil in sowing, but a joy in the harvest. Sin, however, is a joy to sow but grief in reaping. Sinner, it is easy to sow sin. But you cannot stomach the harvest. One sin will bear an eternal hell. How hellish must be the hell of billions of sin, of a life of nothing but continual sin. But know this. The good news is though the harvest must be reaped, it need not be you Who reaps it. Every sin sown. Will be met with judgment. But it need not be you who meet it. On the cross. Christ reaped. What sinners sowed. So that sinners. Might reap. What he sowed. When Adam ate of that fruit, the seed of the curse was planted in this earth. And Christ ate the curse, sowing resurrection life for all who would trust in Him. The harvest must be But it need not be you who reaps it. Flee to Christ. Cling to the Christ who was crucified for sinners. First part of this text, of our text, reminds us of why they were being punished. Verse 19. Because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have Rejected it. They did not want to hear his commands. They give no heed to his warnings. But it isn't just Israel's disobedience to the word that evokes God's wrath. It's their observance of his word. Verse 20. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices are not, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. The frankincense and sweet cane mentioned here would be used in the temple worship as part of the incense offered up to God. 
they've gone all out. They've, they've gone to the, the nice supermarket to buy the best of ingredients. But it matters not how extravagant God is not impressed. And so in the first instance, God is indicting their disobedience and now their obedience to His Word. And if you're confused, you're kidding yourself. Because every one of us knows, both from the perspective of a child at minimum, and then likely for many of you from the perspective of as a parent, that there is a way to obey that's not really obeying. Rebellion can be cloaked in religion. Judah here is trying to play cute with the father. She's trying to cover her sin for sin with a show of love and affection. Psalm 57 through 23 thoroughly deals with what's happening. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, as if they are in some way not doing them correctly. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. The problem isn't the offering, it's the offerer. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes and take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Do you see the same to warnings, ways of speaking? If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. That's why they're offering up these sacrifices as they are, because they think God is like them. But now I rebuke you and lay, this, lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. God is not like some pagan deity. He does not need their sacrifices. They need His 
they've completely missed the point of the whole sacrificial system. They think that by doing these things, they've somehow impressed God or scratched some itch or filled some hunger. In Leviticus 17.11, he explained to them, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you. I have given it. You're not giving something to me. I'm giving something to you. And it's speaking of a far greater gift than you can ever fathom, which is the only basis upon which you can ever come before me. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God cannot be manipulated by your service. You cannot make your sins right. You cannot cover them. If you think by all your singing, by your Bible reading, by your praying, by your attendance, by your having gotten wet, by your eating some bread and wine, by your listening to only Christian music, by your not watching certain kind of movies, if you think by all these sacrifices, you've somehow impressed God, God, if you think that by them you've somehow accrued some credit so that you can spend some sin, you're wrong. Thomas Brooks said, God will not be put off with the shell when we give the devil the kernel. You need not repent simply of your disobedience. You need repent of your blasphemous, putrid Vile obedience. You remember whenever Saul sinned by allowing the people to keep and sacrifice what was to be devoted to utter destruction. You remember whenever Samuel rebuked him? Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Woe to those who put on a show of worship to cover a closet full of sin. It's because Judah ignores the word that her ceremonial observance of it is so repulsive to him. Thomas Watson explains, obedience pleases God. To obey is better than sacrifice. In sacrifice, a dead beast only is offered. In obedience, a living soul. In sacrifice, only a part of the fruit is offered. In obedience, fruit and tree and all. Man offers himself up to God. It is not said God shows mercy to thousands that know His commandments but that keep them. Knowing His commandments without keeping them does not entitle any to mercy. The commandment is not only a rule of knowledge, but of duty. A good Christian, like the sun, not only sends forth light, but makes a circuit round the world. He has not only the light of knowledge, but moves in a sphere of obedience. Judah is not offering herself up to Yahweh in these sacrifices. She's trying to appease Yahweh so that she can offer herself up to her idols without consequence. 
As he said in chapter 3 and verse 10, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. And the consequence of Judah having trod such a path is that a stumbling block, stumbling blocks, verse 21, will be set before her. To walk on this pay path of sin is not safe because God stands against it. He sets stumbling blocks on this path. These are not stumbling blocks of sin. These are stumbling blocks because of sin. Those who stumble over these blocks perish. And the stumbling blocks are nothing other than the people from the north country spoken of in verse 22 in the next section. These, this great nation that's stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. God has stirred this hornet's nest and He's bringing the hornets to His people. And they come ready for war both in hand and in heart. In their hand, the javelin and the bow, and in their heart, cruelty, verse 23, no mercy. Like the roaring sea is their advance as the cavalry comes against them. But, but then we go from an army to a man. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for a battle. Why do we go from the plural to the singular, from an army to describing this army as a, as a singular warrior ready for battle? Against you, O daughter of Zion, there's this contrast between the warrior ready and equipped and him showing no mercy in his cruelty. And this daughter who hears the report of it and her hands fall limp, nothing she can do. And she's in the pain and agony comparable only to childbirth in light of this force that's come against her. Having refused to walk in God's ways, verse 25, she cannot walk on the road because terror is on every side. And again, I think this contrast is set before us because you see the enemy with a sword and then the daughter of my people, Jerusalem, this woman told to put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, and make mourning as for an only son. The idea is she has lost everything. Not simply in the sense of possessions. She's been cut off from any participation in the covenant. That's the significance. No son, no name, no inheritance erased from having any participation in the people of God. This is the judgment that sin brings. To lose God is to lose all desirable. And to have God against you means to have everything against you. Anguish, pain, Mourning, lamentation are the only lot of those who face such a judgment. And finally, 
God turns to Jeremiah and says, I have made you a tester of metals to test the ways of his people. And the results are pronounced before we see the test carried out. The results are that they are bronze and iron. They are stubborn and rebellious, verse 28. It's made clear as we go along that whenever this ore is introduced into the fire, it's silver that God is after. Lead would be inserted into the the molten ore to act as flux, that is, to carry away any impurities. So the lead is introduced, the bellows are blown so that the lead oxidizes, and then it forms slag with these impurities, and they're removed. The problem is, the impurities cannot be removed Because impurities are all that there are. This is done in vain. The lead itself is consumed. Derek Kidner comments, The people of Judah are not, so to speak, precious metal marred by some impurities, but base metal from which nothing of worth can be extracted. You see, the results of this metallurgy are the same as that survey that Jeremiah was to conduct in chapter 5 to see if one could be found who does justice and seeks truth. And the results were that among them all, great and the least of them alike, there could not be found one who knows the way of Yahweh. They had all alike broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Judah's not a diamond in the rough. She's just a lump of coal. She's not a sheep in need of a bath. She doesn't need sanctification. She needs salvation. She needs regeneration. She needs to be made new. She's not a sheep, she's a goat. Whenever you baptize a goat, you don't get a sheep, you get a wet, stinky goat. She needs a miraculous transformation. She isn't silver, she's rejected silver. She's some kind of fake ore that gives the impression of silver, but isn't anything true. The ore does not need to be purified. It needs to be miraculously transformed. Just because fool's gold sparkles doesn't give it value. The metal must be true or it is rejected. This is the dire test result for every one of us as we are in Adam. We are bronze, we are iron. We are stubborn, hard, calloused, rebellious. We want nothing of His commands. We will not hear His warnings. And having rejected God, fitly God rejects man. Sow rejection and reap Rejection. 
And you may rejoice in the sowing and the autonomy and freedom that you're disillusioned to enjoy. But you cannot but mourn when the harvest comes and you are made to taste the bitterness of sin. The way is easy that leads to destruction, but it leads to destruction and nowhere else. Our only hope is the Midas touch of the King to transform us from brazen bronze to malleable, precious metals. It's precisely what is promised in the new covenant that Jeremiah will speak of in chapter 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. But in light of this passage, is it not especially precious to, re- to meditate on the new covenant as it's elaborated in Ezekiel? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Because Jesus died for sinners. Bearing the wrath of the Father against sin. And rose as the first fruits of the age to come. All who trust in Him are no longer part of the ore of this earth. Doomed for the eternal fires of hell. But rather, they are the Father's precious gold and silver being purified temporally in this life to reflect His glory eternally in the new heaven and the new earth. How do you know if you are God's silver? Do you walk the ancient paths? Walking the paths won't make you silver. Being silver causes you to walk these paths. Has the king touched you? Has he made you new? Do you desire him, long for him? Do you want to walk in his ways? If you are not sure that he's touched you, If you see your sin this morning, if you tremble at the truth of His judgment, cry out that God would have mercy on you for the sake of Christ. Trusting and believing in Him. Pleading mercy and grace. And if your cry runs true, All the way to the heart.
rejoice. Because it means that the king has already touched you. Removing a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. He's already touched you. Transforming you from rebellious bronze to malleable silver. Praise His name. Let's pray. Father, acknowledging the justness of Your justice, the righteousness of Your wrath, knowing we deserve nothing else. We rejoice in Your goodness and grace. And we plead that for Your honor, for Your glory, we would see Your saving touch on many souls. We plead it for those that we don't know and we can't see among our fellowship, that it is a show, but there's nothing Beneath it all, save them. We pray it for our children. Save them. We plead it for our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. Father, save them. May we be faithful watchmen to tell them of the holy God of heaven. who will not let the least sin go unreaped, but has also blessedly given His Son to reap what we've sown, so that we might reap of His salvation forevermore. Father, praise be to You for Your great gift. Of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.